Good morning. Really grateful for the opportunity to be with you this morning for worship and to present the word to you. Thank you for your um, pastor's kind invitation. It's good to see so many of you again. I think I've preached here one other time and then uh, in a service and then, of course, was here for your uh, conference just what was that a couple months ago? I think I'm already losing track of time a little bit, but uh, it's good to be uh, good to be with you all again this morning, and looking forward to our time in the Word as we consider together what the Lord would have for us. So, if you take a Bible, if you have a copy of God's Word, and turn to Ephesians chapter two, which is the passage that we read together just a moment ago. Uh, of course, we've come from celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ during this season, and we've heard the story of Jesus Christ, the story of his birth, the reason that he came, his incarnation. And uh, if you're like me, maybe you like hearing other people's stories. Sometimes my wife will tell me that I uh, ask too many questions when I meet people. I can be a little bit overbearing because I'll meet someone and I just start rapid firing all these questions about, you know, where were you born? Where'd you go to school? Where, you know, what, what do you do for a living? All these sort of questions. And it maybe can be a little overwhelming for some people. But I enjoy hearing people's story. If I meet you, I wonder, you know, how did you get here? Were you born here? How long have you been in this church? I naturally have all these questions that go through my mind. Maybe some of you aren't like that at all. Maybe some of you are, are like me in that way. Well, in this passage in Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 10, Paul is telling us a little bit about our story. He wants us to know something about what Jesus did and how that's affected our story dramatically. In other words, how the story of Jesus, which we've been celebrating this Christmas season, intersects with the story of our lives in such a way that it changes our lives for the good forever. And so Paul wants us to kind of just be amazed by what God has done in our lives in changing our stories. In fact, in Ephesians 1, he's prayed that we might comprehend the depth of the wisdom and the love of God. And so in Ephesians 2 now, he's going to help us kind of have an ability to comprehend that and to understand that by, by showing us more of the magnitude of the mercy of Jesus Christ in saving us. And so we have already read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I won't read it again, but we'll be referring back to it throughout our time together this morning. So I hope you have a copy of the word that's open to Ephesians 2. And what we'll do, if you like to take notes, we have really three very simple points. We're going to look at who we were, who we are, and then why this matters. Who we were, who we are, and then why this matters. We'll be looking at our story together this morning, okay? So, very first point, who we were. Paul makes it very clear in verse 1. What does he say? And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. So, who we were, we were dead in sin. You see, the Bible tells us that the natural state, the natural state of all human beings is spiritual death. Apart from the mercy of God in your life, apart from the grace of God in my life that's shed abroad in the hearts, our hearts by Jesus Christ, we are spiritually dead. Now, what does that mean when when the writer here, Paul, says that we are spiritually dead? Because, you know, in your own experience, it doesn't maybe seem that way. I realize that 
We're at a time of the year where perhaps some of you are visiting and you're not normally in uh, a worship service like this. Maybe you've been invited by a family member or a friend, or maybe there are folks here who wouldn't necessarily claim to be a Christian. I I can see how that might be the case. And, And so perhaps you're here this morning and you find the claims of the Bible and Christianity to be a little bit odd. You say, well, I'm very much alive. I choose, I speak, I will, I do, I I chose to be here this morning. And here's the Bible saying, no, no, you're you're dead. Well, what does that mean that I'm I'm dead? I feel very, very much alive. All right, here's what the Bible means. Here's what Paul means. And that is that we are in a state of spiritual alienation from God. That's what he means when he says we're dead in sin. We're, We're alienated from life as it was meant to be lived. Because you see, God created you and I, and he created all human beings, so that our life is experienced as it was meant to be lived, in its fullest, when we are in relationship with God. St. Augustine said, You have made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Right? So God has made us with an innate longing and in something inherently missing in our lives. And that is only finally and fully realized when we are in relationship with God. So you see, life as it was meant to be lived is in relationship with God. And so that's why Paul can say, every person that's born is alienated from God. So every person that's born is spiritually dead. We don't have spiritual life. We're not living life as God made us to live it. So you can be breathing. You can be doing what you want to do. You can be choosing what you want to do. And yet, if you're a human being created in the image of God, and you're not in saving fellowship with God, you are not experiencing life in its fullest. You're not experiencing life as you were created to live it. Because you're dead. You're alienated from God. Well, maybe you wonder, well, why don't I have this life? You know, if, I, if this is how I was meant to live in this relationship with God, well, well, why don't I have it? Where did that death come from? I don't ever remember choosing that. Well, Paul makes it clear. Verse 1, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. We are dead in our sin. We don't have this life because of sin. Sin is the root of spiritual death. We're all born in sin, but we all commit personal conscience, conscious sins as well that alienate us from a completely holy God. All right? God is all holy, and we are all sinful. And that's what makes us not experience life, real life, as it was made to be experienced. Now, this message of who we are, or who we were, if you're a believer, it's who we were. If you're not a Christian here today, it's, it's who you are. This, this message is completely alien from the message that society will give us, right? Society tells us, hey, basically everyone's a pretty decent person. And if you just believe in yourself and you just work hard enough, you know, you can do anything you want to do and be anything you want to be. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the messages of, of kind of innate moral goodness that's in all of us. And the Bible cuts right across that and says, actually, 
you're not innately morally good. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. And, it, and we don't even realize it. We're walking according to the prince of the power of the air, verse 2. The spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. Maybe we have a kind of rosy picture of ourselves as being, you know, probably decent people and kind of living in a nice way. But verse 3 says, no, we lived according to the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We lived according to the mantra that our society lives in, and that is, do I like it? Does it make me feel good? Is it going to just help me? And that's what I'll do. We were innately selfish people. Now, this is a very alien message uh, from what society tells us, isn't it? It's completely different. Society and even just basic religion will say, hey, be confident. You can do it. You're a good person. And the beginning of the Christian message is, you are dead. Now, no one else in the world is going to tell you this except the Bible. The Bible gives us a real true picture of who we were apart from Jesus Christ. And it's sobering, isn't it? It's really, it can, it can be discouraging. If we stopped here, this would be a very discouraging message. And yet, praise God, he doesn't stop there, right? Verse 4, after verse 1, 2, and 3, giving us this bleak picture of being dead in trespasses and sins, and we're utterly captive and unable to change ourselves. We don't even realize we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're just walking according to what we enjoy, and we have no idea that we're in this darkness. And yet, verse 4 gives us hope, right? How does it start? Everyone look at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in those trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So verse 4 transitions from who we were now to who we are because of Jesus Christ. This passage is moving from death under the just judgment of God for our sin to life in Jesus Christ because of what he has done for us. See, Jesus Christ is the reason for our hope. If you're a Christian here today and you believe what verse 1, 2, and 3 say, And that is that every person that's born in this world, apart from Jesus Christ, is dead in trespasses and sins, unable to change ourselves, walking according to the prince of the power of the air. If you believe that, then we need hope, don't we? But see, that's what the glorious message of Christmas is, isn't it? That God has made a way for a holy God and sinful people to be reconciled by sending his son, Jesus Christ. So verse 4 says that our hope only comes from God. God intervened decisively into our situation. When we could do nothing, God came to the rescue. And this is very important, isn't it? Because the Christian message of salvation is not a message that your help comes from something in you you know look within inside yourself and you'll find the resources to make yourself a better person rather the christian message is your help comes from something outside of yourself your help comes from the lord right but god who is rich in mercy even when we were dead even when we were doing nothing 
He intervened into our situation, right? Our help doesn't come from inside. It comes from outside. You know, you're probably all familiar with that uh, famous quote from Benjamin Franklin, right? He kind of made it famous. God helps those who help themselves. And that's, you know, we can talk about various situations in which that might be true. But when it comes to theology, that's actually a really bad statement, isn't it? God helps those who help themselves. If that's true of our salvation, then we're in deep trouble. Because the point is, we can't help ourselves, right? A corpse doesn't will themselves back to life. If we're dead in our trespasses and sin, where does that leave us if God helps those who help themselves? It leaves us still dead, right? So God is the only source of our help. God in his mercy took the initiative and came and rescued us when we couldn't do anything about our condition. Now, this is the central element of the Christian understanding of hope. If you want to understand Christianity, you have to understand this. And that is that Christianity is not about what we do for God, but about what he has done for us. That's what it's about. This book is not about everything that you need to do for God. This book is telling you what he has done for you. And then encouraging you to rest in that and take joy and delight in that. That's the central element of all of Christianity. And that's what Paul is saying. It's not about what you do, but about what he's done. And that is a message of hope and of comfort. And that moves you, if you really understand that, that moves you to to praise and to worship God and to love him and to obey him and to serve other people. When we really rest in what God has done for us, that causes us to really worship him and really love and serve others. This is the very central element of who we are now. Because of God in Jesus Christ, we are new creations. Well, what is it that God has done? Did you notice in verse 3, it says that he made us alive together with Christ? I'm sorry, that's verse 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together. Look at verse 6. It says he raised us up with him. And then he sat us in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. In other words, what has God done? He's he's saved us. Right? He saved us when we needed a Savior. When we were in utter desperate straits because of our sin. And sadly, we didn't even realize it. God intervened and saved us. He made us alive together with Christ. And I love in the uh, New King James here, it's in parentheses. I'm assuming it is in your Bible as well in verse 5. Paul says, just in case you're wondering, God made us alive together with Christ, parentheses, by grace you've been saved, right? I mean, just in case you're wondering, it's all of his grace, because you couldn't do anything about it, I couldn't do anything about it, and so this, this grace has come to us through Jesus Christ and by faith in him. Now, why is Paul telling us that? Why is Paul taking all this time and effort to tell us who we were It's dark, it's bleak, it's desperate. And then now tell us who we are 
in Jesus Christ, by grace you've been saved, you've been seated in the heavenly places, you've been made alive together with Christ, everything that is Christ is now yours, you've been united to him. Why is Paul saying all of these things? Because those realities change everything about your life. You know how sometimes you experience things, you experience events or circumstances in your life that that just change your life, that alter the very fabric of your life. I'm not talking about everyday, normal experiences. You know, I went out and checked the mail, watched Jeopardy. I'm not talking about those sorts of things, right? We're not talking about mundane kinds of things. I'm talking about life-altering experiences that you can point to that say, you know, it just forever changed who I am. Maybe they're bad. You know, maybe something really bad happened to you when you were a child. Uh, maybe you, you, you lost a loved one at a crucial time in your life or, you ex- or someone sinned against you in a very specific way and, and it just forever has changed you. Maybe it's good. Maybe the Lord blessed you with a, a wonderful spouse or a family or the Lord gave you a certain job at a certain key time in your life and it just forever changed everything about you. Or maybe, you, know, you, you can all think of these things, right? There are things in our lives that just forever changed who we were. We'll always remember them. That's true even collectively, right? Most people here are probably Americans. And so you can, if I throw out certain dates, you can remember where you were when those things happened. It's forever changed who we were as a country. Of course, the one that's most recent in our memories is September 11th of 2001, which is just, it's just changed America. It's forever changed. it. There's just no turning back after that. Those sorts of things happen in our lives or in our country, maybe in a church. It's happened in your church as well. Those things happen, and it forever changes who we are or who this church is or who our country is. And Paul is telling us who we were and who we are because these realities forever change who we are. Right? Paul knew when he was writing that there were hundreds of stories in that church in Ephesus. Each person had a story about something that had happened to them as a little boy or something that came to them as, a pers- as an adult person or someone who had died in their life. Or, In other words, all of these various things, Paul knew that was true in the church of Ephesus. God knows it's true in this church today. And what the message of this passage is in one way is that we're told that no matter what you've gone through, no matter how demoralizing it may have been, no matter how bitter or how painful it was or is, that these eternal realities, that you've been raised with Jesus Christ, that you've been united to him, by grace you've been saved, that everything that is Christ is yours, that those eternal realities are bigger and they are more important than anything you've ever faced. Those events... These eternal events define who you are in a greater way than anything else that has happened to you. It's more important than where you were born. It's more important than the schools you went to, the friendships that you had or that you have now, the vocation, the job that you had or that you have now, the service that you're involved in in the church. More important than any of those things are these eternal realities. When you were dead, God made you alive. He's united you to Jesus Christ. All that is in Christ is yours. Every blessing is yours, Christian. That defines who you are. When you trusted Jesus Christ, you died your sin. You were raised again. You're seated in the heavenly places. His story 
has become your story. His blessings have become your blessings. His salvation is for you. God made him who knew no sin to be sin that what? That you might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ became sin so that you could become righteous. So that when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is a reality that changes everything, isn't it? That is an incredible reality. And so no matter what's going on in your life right now that you think defines you, here's some bigger, greater realities that define who you are as a Christian. You've been raised from the dead. You're alive. You're no longer in bondage to sin. You're free. You are sons and daughters of the king, right? You've ascended to heavenly places in Jesus Christ. You're free from your sin. These things absolutely define who you are and change your perspective, right? And that's the light and the perspective that we must walk in as Christians to realize we all have a story, Those stories are fascinating. Those stories define who we are. We could start and be here all day, all week, and just have each one of you come up and tell us your story. Start when you were born. Tell us about some key events in your childhood. Tell us about, you know, a marriage if you had a marriage or or your job or your vocation. And and we'd start to get a sense of who you were and what shaped you and what's defined you and now how you view life, your perspective in life. And here's Paul, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, saying, here's who you were, here's who you are now. That changes your perspective, right? You should walk out of this room a different person, seeing through different lenses, because here's some eternal realities that are true in my life, and that changes who I am. Now then, here's the last point. Why does this matter? Paul's shown us who we were. If you're a Christian here today, he's shown you now who you are. Why does this matter? Well, it matters. I'm going to mention two reasons here. It matters, first of all, because Jesus deserves all the credit. Right? Jesus deserves all the credit. He did all this. Have you ever thought, what motivated God to do this? What motivated God to to save us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins? Did God look down on us and say, you know, they are just such wonderful people that I can't help myself. What a wonderful person. I, I need to save them right away. Or did God look down and say, you know, some people down there, you know, are just better than other people. I mean, they work harder and try harder and I just kind of like them more. Did God say something like that, or did God look down and say, you know, there's a guy that's really trying hard, and I'm just going to meet him halfway, and, you know, together we're going to make this work. Is that what God did? Is, Is this what motivated God? No. Isn't it interesting that when Paul tells us why God did this in verse 4 and 5, he doesn't ever mention us, right? He doesn't ever say, and you, who were pretty decent folks and trying pretty hard, God reached, no, no, he says in verse 4, God, who is rich in mercy, because, why? Because of his great love with which he loved us, did these things. So it's by grace you have been saved. And verse 7, he did it as well so that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and of his kindness towards us. Why did God do this? Because of his mercy, because of his love, because of his kindness, because of his grace. This is what motivated God to do that. Now, 
Hopefully that doesn't irritate you, you know, that you say, well, I want it to be something that I do, or I want it to be something in, in me. No, folks, you see, that's actually very, very important. Because if we think there is something in us that brought about God's love and kindness and forgiveness, that God looked and saw something in us, and that's why he saved us, if we think that, then we will also realize that there could be something in us that could undermine that love, kindness, and forgiveness from God, right? I mean, if there was something in me that commended myself to God, that God said, okay, I see, you know, and I'm going to save you, then there also could be something in me that did not commend myself to God anymore, that could undermine his love for me. If his love was based upon my merit and how I did and how I'm doing right now, then that could be undermined, that could be lost, right? Because, goodness, if my relationship with God is based upon how well I'm doing at any given point, then I'm not in a very good situation. But if God's love for me is unilateral, meaning it's just because he loved me, he loves me because he loves me, because he chose to love me, then that is an unshaking love, right? That's what the Old Testament, the Hebrew word hesed, is a steadfast love. It doesn't ever stop. It never gives up. Nothing can ever break it. Nothing can separate you from that kind of love because it's not based upon what you do, right? It's not based upon how you're doing. This is ideally the way the marriage relationship is supposed to work in reflecting Christ and his church, that our love for our spouses is not rooted in how they're doing that day. It's rooted in the choice that we love them. That's hard for us as human beings because that ebb and flow, right? And we're imperfect. But God perfectly exemplifies that love that is not based in all upon us, but based solely in him. And so that means that all the glory goes back to the one who did all the work, right? When people look at us, they see his workmanship. Did you notice that in verse 10? We are his workmanship. That's what people see, right? We want to be the kind of people that when people see us, they, they don't look at the painting, they look at the painter, right? They don't, like, if, if you're looking at a painting, you don't say, wow, what a marvelous painting. You say, who painted that, right? That's the kind of thing that God, we, we're God's workmanship. We want to point back to him. The kind of work that people don't marvel at the design, they look at the designer. The whole of salvation is God's work, and so all the glory goes back to him. There's an old hymn written by Horatius Bonar. You may know it. You may not know it. I'm not sure if it's in your hymn book. Um, but, but Horatius Bonar reflects this in, in this text. The first stanza reads, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Now maybe some of you are here, sitting here this morning, and you think, oh yeah, that's true, I get that, right? Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. And not all my prayers and sighs and tears, laying in my bed at night and praying, none of that can bear this load of guilt. Maybe you identify with those words, then the last stanza is for you. He says, thy work alone, O Christ, 
can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. You see, Paul is describing a one-way love. God doesn't love us because we're wonderful, amazing people. God doesn't love us more or less depending upon how much we love him. How'd you do in 2013? You know, that's not, that's not it, right? That's not, God doesn't love you more in 2013 because you loved him more. No, absolutely not. This is a one-way kind of love. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. So today, your burden only comes off at the foot of the cross. Your mental anguish and distress, if you have it this morning, only finds rest in Jesus. The darkness that will not lift in your life is only going to be pierced and flooded by the light of the world. Hope, peace, and life are not yours if you love God sufficiently enough or long enough. They are yours because he loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. And the last thing I want to point out about why this matters is not only because all the credit goes to Jesus, but also because God did all of this for a reason, right? Verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, right? We're told what Jesus saved us from and what he saved us by, by grace through faith, But we're also told what he saved us to, right? He saved us to good works. He saved us to a life of mission, a life of telling others about Jesus Christ, a life of doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with our God, right? He saved us to live a certain kind of life, a life of obedience to him, a life that spills out in love to other people and sharing with other people and sharing the gospel with others, right? God wants us, as we fully realize all that he's given us in Jesus Christ, to be joyfully obedient Christians who love God's law, who love to do good works, who love God, who love our neighbors, who care for one another, who show mercy to the poor, who work justice for the oppressed, who show the love of Christ in every facet of our lives. That's why God saved us, right? He saved us to to lead these kinds of lives. He didn't just save us and take us on home to heaven. He saved us and left us here so that we can be doing something, right? He created us for good works. Now, never misunderstand. We're not saved. We're saved for that, not by that, right? You're not saved by your good works. You know, you're not commending yourself to God by your good works. No, because God has rescued you and saved you and united you to Jesus Christ and he delights in you, you're now free to delight in him and love other people and serve him. That's how it goes, right? God saves us. That leads us to good works. Not we do good works so that God might save us. So, dear people, this morning, I trust you've gained a picture of your story 
if you're in Jesus Christ. Who you were was bleak, it was dark. But now who you are because of the decisive intervention of God in your life through Jesus Christ and freeing you from the slavery of sin so that you might now live fully unto him. That's the most freeing thing in the world, isn't it? If you understand who you are, if you understand your story, it changes your perspective on how you live. So by God's grace this morning, as we consider what God has done, even in this Christmas season, is sending us his son, and as we realize how that intersects with our lives and our story, may we pray that God would give us hearts of gratitude and worship and wonder that would change how we live until God calls us home or until our Savior returns. Would you bow your head with me in prayer as I close us now in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our time together in your word and for these truths, for these wonderful truths. Lord, I do pray that you might work them deep into our hearts, that we might love you and serve you and serve others. Father, I thank you for your grace that's been exhibited to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. May we never lose sight of the wonder of that. And we pray these things now in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Would you rise with me and please stand as we sing together.